Hello everyone and welcome to the third series of Shelf Concerns. My name is Claire Allen and I am Programme Leader for the MA in English at the University of Northampton. On this special Halloween edition, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Philippa Bennett, who is an expert in Victorian literature, and Dr. David Simmons, who is an expert in uh, American literature. But David is also the programme leader for film and screen and has a particular interest in adaptation. And Philippa is the programme leader for the BA English mod. Uh, program here at the university and today we're going to get both of their takes on a really important and somewhat terrifying text one might say the strange case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde which we thought would perfect for Halloween so hello both and welcome let's start off by thinking about why this text is so important and why we love it so much. And I guess one of the key things that it addresses is the idea of monsters and monstrosity. Philippa, what do you think about that? How does that text discuss those ideas? Well, I think Claire, it's really fascinating in how it evolves the Gothic genre where the monster is always something out there different othered um and to be expelled you know sort of from the bowels of the text at the end so that we can all feel safe and comfortable i think what stevenson does which is really fascinating in this text is sort of he brings the gothic home and right home he internalizes the idea of monstrosity um, and also he brings a monster to the streets of London because again traditionally in the gothic genre in the 18th century even into the early 19th century you know gothic texts tend to be set in you know foreign places because there's this sense that gothic things don't happen on on British shores there's a lovely moment in Northanger Abbey where um, um, Henry Tilney talks to Sir Catherine about not not letting her imagination get ahead of her because this is England I think he says this is Gloucestershire you know these things don't happen here but what Stevenson does is show how the streets of London become this terrifying nightmare space in which you don't know who's there, who's watching you, who's following you. Um, and further than that, he actually also internalizes this sense of monstrosity because the monster ultimately is inside us. Hyde is Jekyll and Jekyll is Hyde. Um, they appear in different physical personas, but they are one and the same person. And I think, therefore, what happens is that kind of middle-class, respectable London English scene is absolutely um, ravaged by the sense that lurking behind closed doors, there are monsters waiting to get out. Lurking inside all of us, there's a kind of monster waiting to get out. Yeah, just, just to add to that, Philippa, um, you know, I think one of the reasons for the continuing sort of popularity of the text uh, and it has continued to be a really sort of commercially successful as well as critically um, sort of well-received novel uh, is, is, you know, what you're talking about there, this idea of bringing the monster um, into uh, the sort of internal psyche. Um, Jekyll famously says at one point, doesn't he, that man is not truly one, but truly two. Um, and the novella seems to speak um, seems to sort of uh, have something to say that's quite apposite um, at the at the sort of turn of the 20th century about what would become one of the prevailing concerns 
of the, the sort of modern age, the contemporary age, I guess, which is this notion of the, the sort of fragmented psyche, the fragmented self, the divided self sort of feeding forward into um, the, the field that we've become known as psychoanalysis. Um, so I think, you know, it's very much about uh, exploring this idea of the duality uh, of man and this, or, or of people rather, I should say. Um, so yeah, I, I think kind of that's a key sort of reason for its its kind of success. Yeah, I think it's uh, that's absolutely right, David. It does. It's very modern in that respect, isn't it? In terms of its psychology, I mean, it's also really innovative because it takes that kind of gothicization of science, if you like, that that Frankenstein has already started at the beginning of the nineteenth uh, century. Um, and brings it right up to date in this post-Darwinian context because what you know, Gothic writers loved Darwinian theory because the whole idea of evolution was that we carry around in us traits of a more primal, aggressive, violent self. But then Stephen takes that to the, another level and actually um, draws on contemporary sort of psychological um, theories of evolution as well and that we also, in our brain, have a kind of... Um, aggressive element so gothic is really interested in atavism at the end of the the 19th century and this sense that we are you know we, we can any one of us could become a kind of evolutionary throwback at some point and Hyde essentially is that isn't he? he's like a kind of evolutionary throwback he's described as being short as being um having a simian look about him there's a very very deliberate sort of indications that, that darwinian theory has um has influenced this novella and again that makes it kind of curiously uh, modern yeah i mean very much so one of the things that i find interesting is um some of the early film adaptations one of which i'll probably talk a bit more about shortly the way in which they visualize um hyde's appearance in particular on screen because obviously in the novella um stevenson can sort of rely upon the reader filling in some of the blanks for themselves so to speak and, and one of the you know noticeable things about hyde and about other characters uh, attempts to describe hyde are is that they always find it quite difficult to do that they always find it quite um, difficult uh, if not impossible to definitively um you know sort of describe his physical appearance so as you were saying they sort of talk about him being like things um elsewhere characters talk about him being indescribable um so there's this sense in which Hyde's physical appearance is is uh, is displeasing as one of the characters um says at one point but ultimately they find it quite difficult to say exactly why that is and and obviously with um you know transferring the story onto film um you have to come up with some some more definitive take on the character uh and and thinking about ideas of degeneration um it's uh, it's interesting how these early film versions the 1931 version 1941 version um they go in a similar direction uh, and this is partly i think tied to ideas of class uh, that were around that were kind of circulating both at the time that um, stevenson originally published the novel but also in the kind of decades since then um, and and we get this real sense in in some of these early film versions that um, 
when Jekyll takes that potion and turns him to Hyde, uh, it's not only a kind of devolution, um, an evolutionary sort of uh, sliding back, but also a sliding down the, the kind of class hierarchy. Um, and there are all sorts of kind of interpretations of why this might be uh, from various scholars um, thinking about sort of early, well, relatively early cinema. Um, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things, I guess, is that at the time um, Stevenson originally published the text, um, there was sort of class unrest. Uh, there were certainly cl uh, concerns amongst the middle classes about um, the working classes uh, in and around the capital. Um, a real sort of fear that uh, slum conditions were going to lead to some sort of uprising, um, riots, class-based riots. Um, the Pall Mall Gazette talked about the savages of civilization that were being raised in the slums of the capital. Uh, and I think kind of it's interesting to think about how that feeds into um, some of these Hollywood uh, sort of adaptations of the text, especially given that, you know, they're obviously operating in a different country in the US, but they seem to find some resonance um, with that kind of uh, working class uh, depiction of Hyde. Yeah, thanks. That's really interesting. Yeah, Philip, would you want to respond to that? Yeah, I was um, thinking as well, just going back to what you were talking about in terms of how no one can describe Hyde, which is really because, you know, usually when you get your monster, you get your terrifying, scary creature. Um, you know, you, th there are sort of certain features or, you know, standard representations out there that we, we expect. Um, you get quite a detailed description, for example, of Frankenstein's creature. We know how he looks. We get a very detailed description of Dracula. We know how he looks, uh, even though that look changes. With Jekyll and Hyde, as um, and with, with Mr. Hyde, as, as David has pointed out, there's this he he sort of transcends any of the characters' linguistic ability to kind of, they cannot pin him down verbally, and there's also this kind of dread when they look at him, um, which might come from because Stevenson talks um, well, sorry, rather Jekyll talks in in his sort of letter at the end, his explanation about this part of him being pure evil. So one of the kind of shocks perhaps that these characters have when they confront him is that nobody has seen what pure evil looks like. Human beings, the text suggests, are, 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 you know, are a, a mixture of, of good and evil. But if you have pure evil, what would it look like? Um, and there's that kind of uncanny sort of a confrontation with something in us that's, that's kind of writ large, that's been sort of distilled down to its, its, its essence. But there's also, I think, a sense when they look at this sort of, he's called troglodytic at one point as well, isn't he, as well as Simeon, a kind of sense that we are looking back down the evolutionary spectrum and we're looking at ourselves as we were uh, and also how we potentially could be. And I think there's this also this kind of shock when they look at him that they see themselves. This is part of that uncanny effect he has. They see something of themselves and their own evolutionary heritage before them. Um, and, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying for them to, to, to see that. And I would just add in terms of the class uh, idea which I think you know David is spot on with is there's that one when they go to Soho and they talk about the brown swirling fog and the people running in and out of the gin shop and these respectable gentlemen you know trying to hunt down Hyde um, you know enter this sort of nightmarish landscape in which 
they can barely see and these figures appear out of the smog um, and London is is turned into some kind of spectral place in this narrative and there are parts of you know it, it's a city that is very divided in terms of class um, and the fact that Hyde is able to move in a very fluid way across all these class boundaries is again something that makes him terrified he doesn't stay in his place he doesn't eventually stay inside Hyde either he erupts without heart without Jekyll sorry, sorry wanting him to to come out but he is also very mobile around the city um and rather like Dracula in that respect the mobile monster is a, is a terrifying monster because you never know where he's going to be next so that sounds really fascinating in terms of like you say, there's clearly discussions about class happening there. There's discussions about kind of what's happening in Victorian London, in, in Victorian society as a whole. So, Philippa, do you read this as a critique of particular issues within Victorian society? And then, David, I wonder if you could then talk about some of the adaptations and why it's been adapted so many times and maybe, you know, kind of why it's of, of continued interest for those adaptations. Yeah, and I think one of the things, and we get this in Henry Jekyll's full statement of the case at the end, he talks about the fact that even as a young man, um, he says, you know, even before he'd thought of, you know, Hyde or the process that would release Hyde, he says, I already stood committed to a profound duplicity of life. And he talks about, you know, having a morbid sense of shame um, about some of his behaviors. He, he sort of, he, he doesn't say what those behaviors are, but he's kind of saying they weren't too bad. But he's a professional man. He's a, you know, he's a doctor. He's certainly been the upper middle classes in terms of where he lives in London and the society he mixes in. And he feels he has this reputation and this public persona to keep up. Um, Gothic is fascinated by the divide between the private and the public spheres. Um, and Hyde, of course, is this intensely private self that he represses. Um, but there's a real sense, I think, in this that, you know, that we create as a society, we create our own monsters through our moral policing, you know, through the boundaries that are set up and what's what's allowed and what isn't allowed. Certainly, in, you know, late Victorian Britain, you know, we're just a few years here before the um, trial of Oscar Wilde. Um, there is, you know, uh, there's various homoerotic readings of, of Jekyll and Hyde as well. Um, but whatever Hyde's supposed transgressions are by Victorian standards, um, you know, he feels that he cannot indulge them in public. And I think the really interesting thing is when he does find a means to release this um, this monster within. Um, he actually really enjoys it. Um, that you know, he he talks about this kind of feeling of being incredibly sweet, feeling younger, lighter, and happier. I mean, that's those aren't terms are that we would usually associate with a monster. We expect our kind of Frankenstein's creature that expresses their monstrosity, you know, and it is somehow miserable or abject. Um, but Hyde isn't the abject monster. He's absolutely delighting in the fact that he can behave exactly how he wants and he can never be caught because he simply changes back into Jekyll so nobody can ever catch him. And I think, again, perhaps one of the most terrifying things about this book, and I often, you know, if I'm sort of teaching this, we ask, you know, I kind of think, you know, how much do we behave well and um and and you know with consideration for others because we have this genuine moral impetus to do so and how much do we do it because we are conditioned socially um through our laws through our rules through the way we brought up into behaving a certain way 
And I think it raises perhaps one of the most terrifying questions of all for us, which is, if you really could get away with anything, is there something you would do that you would actually at the minute feel is, is, is a terrible thing to do? It's a really uncomfortable question. We all immediately want to say, no, of course I wouldn't. But if you really, really ask yourself the question about how much you behave well because you want to or how much you behave well because you might get caught if you don't, that becomes really quite interesting. And um, mm, that's the stuff of nightmares itself, I think. Yeah, so yes. David, so why why has this been adapted so many times and, and what do some of those adaptations address? Yeah, um, so I think, I think kind of there are a number of reasons that it's been uh, sort of so popular as a text to adapt. Um, one of those is something that we've already sort of touched on a bit, which is this idea of um, sort of the truth or meaning and answer being deferred, kind of continually deferred in the text. And some scholars, some critics have suggested, you know, even even when we finish, we get to the end of the novella, um, it's still the case that there are kind of quite important questions we don't know the answer to. I mean, you know, without wishing to spoil things for anyone, um, uh, sort of uh, Jekyll slash Hyde um, doesn't actually work out, doesn't know what has cause the transformation to work in the way that it has it just gets put down to um a sort of unknown impurity i think uh in the in the sort of chemical concoction the mixture the potion um that jekyll takes um but you know obviously the the kind of nested um narrative structure uh, of the text feeds into that um and it's easy to forget now because the text and, and the basic narrative has become so familiar to us that, um, you know, it takes a very long time uh, reading the text until you actually find out that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. Um, but anyway, um, what was I saying? Uh, yes, yeah, something we've already talked about, this idea of sort of Hyde being something of a, a kind of ontological or epistemological black hole. No one can describe him, no one kind of kind of can def definitively um, explain what he is um, means that the text uh, is um, sort of open to a number of different interpretations some of which uh, Philippa has, has kind of alluded to and mentioned there so it seems a very uh, a very sort of open text in that way um, and that's obviously proven to be quite appealing to a number of successive um, filmmakers, people that have adapted it to the stage uh, and into other mediums as well. Um, it is uh, a sort of narrative that has been retooled and refashioned since its original publication um, to comment on uh, a whole host of sort of social and cultural issues and concerns. Um, I mean, one one kind of uh, particular adaptation um, that I think works very well, very successfully, is um, uh, Ruben Mamoulian's 1931 um, adaptation starring Frederick Marsh as, uh, as Jekyll and Hyde. Um, and that, that kind of particular adaptation, which was a very big, sort of prestigious, expensive adaptation of the time, it had a budget in the region of sort of $500,000, which 
1931 was a sort of uh, a substantial amount of money to spend on making a film. I think the average was sort of about 350,000. Um, that was that was kind of mounted as a big budget uh, sort of take upon this um, successful novella. Um, Mamoulian himself was uh, a director who'd worked previously in theatre, um, directing musicals for the most part, Oklahoma and Carousel and things like this, but someone who was really kind of interested in the potential uh, of the movie camera, the potential of cinema as an art form. Um, some, some think of a sort of uh, technical virtuoso, I suppose you might call him. And those, those that have seen the film will know it opens with a sort of extended point of view sequence that was incredibly difficult to um, to film at, at the time that the film was made. It involved sort of, because cameras were so much bigger and, and less mobile than they are today, it involved sort of mounting things on the back of uh, trolleys and trucks and all sorts. Um, so yes, this was a big budget um, sort of production, which doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be uh, effective, but in this case, uh, I think uh, Mamoulian's take on the material is is uh, sort of particularly interesting um, and what he does I suppose the the version of Jekyll that we get in this particular um, adaptation is a morally upstanding individual is a morally upstanding doctor uh, the film demonstrates uh, this to the audience in no uncertain terms in some early scenes in which we see him working in the free wards um, you know, so he's he's so noble that he's willing to uh, operate and care for the poor um, without uh, being concerned overly with getting paid for doing so. Um, however, while while um, this version of Jekyll's career is going from strength to strength, the same cannot unfortunately be said for his love life. Um, and this Jekyll, in keeping with many of the successive film adaptations, this Jekyll has a, a love interest, um, which is something that has obviously been invented um, and added into the narrative, doesn't exist in the original novella. Um, Jekyll has a love interest and uh, Hyde has a sort of love interest or has a, a partner of, of a kind. Um, but yeah, this Jekyll is desperate 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 um, and I sort of underlined the word desperate there to marry his fiance um, Muriel uh, uh, but he can't do so um, they're deeply in love but uh, Muriel's father General Sadanvers Carew um, is is not on he's not up for that sort of thing he thinks that they should spend a certain amount of time um, trying to remember how long it is at least several months if not longer um, sort of getting to know one another that it wouldn't be proper for them to rush into marriage but um, as I say Jekyll is is incredibly frustrated um, by this situation um, there's a conversation between him and, and one of his friends Lanyon early on in the film where he goes on about how frustrated he is by this situation which leads to Lanyon calling him indecent uh, numerous times, which I think is sort of signalling to the audience um, what uh, some think about why Jekyll might find the idea of having two separate identities so appealing. Um, so in this film version, Jekyll's motivations 
um, to sort of separate out his good and evil sides uh, seem more directly linked to his um, desires for Muriel, uh, you know, um, than kind of uh, we find certainly in the original novella where he doesn't even have a sort of romantic partner. Um, and Mamoulian himself um, sort of suggested that, in his opinion, uh, Dr. Jekyll, and this is a quote, would like to indulge in all sorts of sexual excess and debauchery, uh, and that the unleashing of Hyde gives him the license to do this. So it, it kind of goes down quite an interesting sort of psychosexual um, route, perhaps bringing into the foreground some of the things that uh, are, are sort of exist as subtext um, in the original novella. March himself is brilliant, kind of in the film, gives a performance that won him a Best Actor Oscar, um, one of only two actors in the history of the Academy Awards to win for a horror role. Um, and yeah, kind of that's that would be my, without wanting to give too much away about the film, that would be my hearty recommendation for a Halloween watch if you're interested in uh, Jekyll and Hyde on screen. Oh, could I, just, I was just going to, um, sounds fascinating, David. I was thinking as you were talking about this, just how with Carew, who is, of course, featured in the text, isn't he? And he's the mm. um, chap who Hyde absolutely tramples to death and has this kind yeah. of furious onslaught. And, and it's watched by the the kind of, you know, the maid in the window who looks out and sees this nice old man, you know, having a little chat with her. And then suddenly, for no reason, it seems, yeah. Hyde just starts beating him and... You know, absolutely. I mean, it's a horrible description, isn't it? We hear how he breaks out in anger, stamps his foot, you know, beats the old man, um, clubs him to the other, ape-like fury, trampling underfoot, and you know, it just doesn't. When it when he's, it just carries on beating him, and I'm wondering whether we're struggling, perhaps in that film, to give the love interest who's linked to uh, Carew, whether or not there's a chance. You know, can we really understand such irrational? rage and violence and anger do you think there's a sort of an attempt to put it into some kind of rational framework so height takes it out on crew because you know he's jekyll's been sort of prevented from from having the relationship i just i'm kind of wondering isn't it how how does that add or does it actually in a way how, how, should we be left with the fact that actually there is this deeply irrational side of the human psyche um, and we never know at any one point in our lives at what point that irrational motive and impulse will come out. Because um, that's kind of part of the terror of the story, isn't it? That we, we've all got to hide, you know, something is hiding inside us all. And it, it, it's whether the right circumstances are there for it to come out and the right motivations. Yes, um, you know, very much so. I think uh, it is it is worth saying that this film version um, sort of plays somewhat fast and loose with some of these characters, uh, character names so they don't map on exactly as they um, do in the novella. Um, I mean, Hyde in this film version uh, gets his own, as I say, uh, love interest might be too strong a term, but he gets his own sort of um, romantic partner or someone that he wishes uh, to be his romantic partner. Um, in, in the form of uh, Ivy, um, who's uh, uh, a kind of singer and uh, a, a woman of loose morals, I think she's described that uh, mm -hmm. as yes. at one point. Um, and, and essentially the film depicts a 
physically um, abusive relationship between the two of them. Uh, this is a pre-code, pre-production code film, um, which is kind of interesting. So it perhaps uh, is able to depict things slightly more explicitly than um, it would have been able to had it been released a couple of years later. Um, but yeah, they have this abusive relationship. Um, and I think, if anything, we're encouraged to feel uh, a lot of sympathy for Ivy. She is a working class character um, who is uh, sort of who takes up with Hyde because he has Jekyll's money. He, you know, he promises to sort of make her rich or uh, to at least elevate her out of the poverty that she lives in. Um, and so we get this instance of uh, a kind of abusive relationship where. Um, she is is kind of promised material gain, um, uh, which never comes, I have to say, um, and uh, Hyde gets to have his wicked way with her. Um, so kind of interesting that these two female characters are introduced, these two romantic partners, one each for Jekyll and Hyde. Interesting, interesting. in the sense um, that, uh, as you alluded to, Philippa, kind of homosexual, homoerotic readings of the novel and the novella are headed off in one sense by introducing these female um, heterosexual partners for, for Jekyll slash Hyde, but also interesting in this particular film's case uh, in terms of um, the sympathy that we're encouraged to feel, uh, particularly for Ivy, the sort of working class female. Mm, that's fascinating, especially the introduction of women into the film, because it's a the, it, women are curiously absent, aren't they, from yes, this novella? Yeah. Uh, it is an extraordinarily homosocial novel, um, anyway. In that you know, it is a band of 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 very upper middle class professional men who dominate. Women have like walk-on parts, don't they? So I think yeah. this you know, this this need to bring women in is again, I think, shows some of the tensions and difficulties, perhaps modern adapters have with you know the, the the novel as it stands so fascinating brilliant thanks both so i think you know overall our recommendation for a halloween read and watch is definitely jekyll and hyde in its various um forms and adaptations so we can be scared about ourselves and who we are and who we might portray ourselves to be but who who might be hiding away as well as what might be happening in the world around us and obviously that could be the Victorian society the time it was written or any society I guess with the, the range of adaptations so enjoy watching or reading Jekyll and Hyde the story of um, in any of its forms that you come across it like David says it's been adapted in many different ways and forms um, don't get too scared um, hopefully you enjoy being scared that's the point of horror I guess in many ways and we look forward to seeing you all next time on Shelf Concerns massive thank you to David and Philippa for joining us and for their expertise this time thanks Claire thanks thanks all see you soon bye